Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the Empowered Birth Podcast. Today, I'm sharing an interview I did with one of my most favorite OBGYNs. And yes, you may be surprised that I have any of those, but I do. And Dr. Stu ranks right up there. I was so thankful that he came on the show to talk about one of my most favorite and also one of the most controversial topics, the medical system. And we discussed what it looked like for both of us to start questioning the system as medical providers. And he answered some important questions on how we got to a place where women started transitioning from home to the hospital and if it's been beneficial for women or not. It was a super insightful and engaging conversation that I think you will love, and it may even challenge you a bit. And Dr. Stuart Fishbein is an associate of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, published author of the book Fearless Pregnancy, Wisdom and Reassurance from a Doctor, a Midwife and a Mom. He has written peer-reviewed papers. And he spent about 24 years assisting women in the hospital birthing and for the last 12 years has been a home birth obstetrician who works directly with midwives. You can find them at birthinginstincts.com. He travels around the world as a lecturer and advocate for reteaching breach and twin birth, respect for the normality of birth and informed consent. You can find all of his links in the show notes below and connect with him there. He also has a wonderful podcast with the midwife, Bliss Young. You can find that where you listen to your podcast. They offer hope, reassurance, and safe evidence-supported choices for those women who cannot find supportive practitioners for VBAC, twin, and breech deliveries. This interview was one of my most favorite interviews, as it gets a bit fiery and passionate, and I love both of that. So it's just a little warning I'm going to throw out there for the moms with young kids. There might be a few cuss words, so listen at your own discretion. If you are a regular listener and you find this podcast and the wonderful guests that are able to come on here helpful, then one way to support this podcast and keep it going is to go to patreon.com slash empowered birth podcast and sign up for a monthly donation. Or you can check out the show notes below for a one-time gift option. And if you're not able to support financially, sharing this podcast with others does so much to help this show keep going. And I appreciate it so much. Together, we can spread the mission of empowered birth. Okay, now let's get into my interview with Dr. Stu. Welcome to the Empowered Birth Podcast. I'm Allie McLean, registered nurse, home birth doula, and former feminist. My mission is to guide you into the freedom that is God's design for femininity, birth, and motherhood. There's a movement happening of powerful women uniting around finding out God's best for us. You're going to find information here that you won't find in your basic childbirth education class. You'll hear stories of women and birth professionals who are experiencing the redeeming experience that birth can be. You're going to get all the information you need to confidently navigate your way from pregnancy to postpartum and beyond. Are you ready to go on a Holy Spirit empowered adventure? Then stick around. You're exactly where you should be.
Hi, Dr. Stu. Thank you for coming on the show. I'm so excited to have a conversation with you today. Uh, there's so many things that I want to ask you, and so we'll just get right into it. But first, can you share a little bit about who you are and what you do? I'd be happy to, Ali, and thanks for having me on. People who know me know my story, but for those people who don't know me, I'm a currently a practicing, well, I'm on sabbatical and I'm traveling and teaching, but I'm a practicing home birth obstetrician working in collaboration with midwives. And I think that my story began when I was about two years old and I could learn to speak. And I was the kind of kid that would always sort of, I don't think it was two, but I asked why a lot. Parents would say something and they'd say why. And probably I said why, because I liked the word initially when I was little. And then it began to be a thing that I would always question mm -hmm. things and got to the point where my parents at some point get exasperated and they say the, the same thing all parents say, which is because I said so. Yeah. And that never set well with me. And I think that that was imprinted on me when I was very young. And when I went into medical school and residency, I began to just question a few things that seemed foolish to me. I am a believer that if something you're taught doesn't meet with your common sense that it's most likely what you're taught is wrong. And, but I will say that I did get indoctrinated through medical school and residency. I did come out thinking that I was really knowledgeable in all things birth. I was the administrative chief resident at Cedar sinai Hospital. And, and I graduated, or I finished my residency in 1986. And I came out and for 10 years, I practiced as most obstetricians do, although it's a little bit different back then, you set up your own office and had a private practice. Now most people come out of residency and they end up getting a job as an employee, which I think is one of the major problems in our healthcare system right now is that doctors are no longer independent. Not that they always did good when they were independent, but they certainly now have no say in, the, in what goes on. So then I went to try to make money and I was approached by some midwives who wanted me to take their transports. And I thought, gee, this will be a great way for me to make some money. I didn't want to take their transports because I thought midwifery or home birth were good ideas. I probably thought that they were foolish because that's what I was probably taught when I was a resident. But slowly over the next 10 years, I began to see a different way of doing things. And I realized that some of their clients are much more educated. They've already indoctrinated me to call them clients and not patients, because patients is a disempowering word that implies that you're sick. Yeah. And pregnant women, for the most part, are not. Some are, and they need medical care, but most aren't and don't. And then I went uh, and started a collaborative practice with midwives, hoping to get some passive income from them, again, as a business model. And it worked great for about 15 years for the midwives. They made a good salary. <laughs> but I, as the boss, was the last person to get paid. But for 15 years, we had a really good thing going. We had really uh, in a hospital in Ventura County, which is just north of Los Angeles. And and we had great numbers, uh, low C-section rates. The midwives took care of all the normal stuff. And I got to specialize in the abnormal stuff. And that was sort of what I was trained in and what they were trained in. And the collaborative practice between a midwife and a physician, I think we gave pretty much the best model of care that you could get uh, in a solo practice. But we were never well accepted in the community. And we were always harassed by the medical model and by the anesthesiologist and by the other obstetricians and by the pediatricians who didn't like the fact that a lot of our clients didn't want epidurals and our clients didn't want hepatitis vaccine and they wanted to go home four hours after they gave birth. And, and it really upset the apple cart. And if all you know is what's inside the box, then you can never really look outside the box. And we were surrounded by people like that. And so it came to a point where 
they banned the midwives, they banned VBAC, they banned breach delivery, and, and not because there were bad outcomes, but simply because they were being mean and vindictive. And that's, people say, how could that possibly be? How could doctors who take a Hippocratic oath be like that? Well, you know what? It's like anything else. It's a mm -hmm. gaggle of people. You get them together and some are very ego-driven, some are very fearful, some are very monetarily driven. Mm -hmm. And we had a good thing in that community. And, and so we were driven out. Yeah. And I went into the home birth world, not a giant leap, but, you know, sort of reluctantly, even after 25 years of working with midwives and backing home birth, the idea of going to home birth and being primary was still a bit daunting for me, but it went great, fortunately, and so did the next 10 or 15. And then I started to gradually get more courageous. And I said, well, if I could do breaches in the hospital, why can't I do them at home? And if I can do diabetics in the hospital, why can't I do them at home? And if I can do twins, blah, blah. And you, so you get the point. And since that time, I've been publishing papers and teaching and realizing that pretty much everything that's in the medical model is wrong. I can't think of anything that the hospital does to you when you show up in labor that isn't stupid. Don't I mean, that. I mean to say stupid. I'm not mm -hmm. trying to be hyperbolic here. Mm -hmm. It's foolish. Everything they do is antithetical to nature's design and nothing mm -hmm. that you would do to any pet or horse or wild animal that you saw was in labor. You would do the opposite of what hospitals do. Yeah. And that's so now I'm I'm preaching. I I got worn out after a while. I mean, I've been on call for myself for almost 40 years. Mm -hmm. And so I took this year off since April 1st and I've been traveling around the country and I bought an RV, which I'm in right now. And I'm it's somewhere in the middle of Utah, and I'm headed up to Wyoming for a reteach breach. I was in Kansas City last weekend, and I'll be in Bozeman, Montana the weekend after that, and then down to Colorado and Texas. That's me in a nutshell. I have a podcast with my dear friend Bliss, and it gives me a, a way to vent every week and also to preach a little bit. And that's me. I love it. There was so much in there. So the first thing I noticed is when you started talking, you were talking about when you were two and you started asking the question, why? And coming from another medical professional who also kind of started to see the BS in the system, it, that's the number one question. And so I was going to ask you, like, what is it that kind of helps people break away or like start critically thinking about some of the things that are going on or some of the things that are suggested? And I know why, like, well, keep asking that question. Like, it's so important. Well, a lot of people don't ask that question because they want to keep their head down because they know in this world we live in right now, you start asking why and you can lose your job. Oh, yeah. So, so many problems with the healthcare system as it is now and has been for a hundred years mm -hmm. or more. But one of the ma major problems is, like I said earlier, is doctors, nurses, doulas being employed by the hospital or the mm -hmm. hospital system. You're not allowed to ask why. Mm -hmm. Secondly, is something which we're learning more about. And I, I can't explain it in a brief podcast because I'm not an expert in it either. But there's a book by a guy named Matthias Desmond on mass formation. I don't know if you uh -huh. heard Maybe. about this recently, but people should look into this book. And what it does is it says people are have a group mentality. And when you're in a group mentality, it's very hard to get out of the group mentality. Because one, you may lose all your friends. And two, you may have to admit that what you've been doing for 20 years has been wrong. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And it's very, very difficult for people to do that. So it's not an easy thing 
for people to do. And I think what happens is sometimes you have a, your own personal experience yeah. that will be the trigger. You'll see your spouse give birth or you'll have your, your sister will tell you a story or you'll have birth of your own. And you'll, I don't know if this is a very prominent person right now. Candace Owens just, just yeah. did her first podcast about her experience. And it was only about her postpartum experience. She didn't even talk about her prenatal care or her labor or anything, but just the things that she went through that were just wrong. Why do you have to interrupt a new mom who needs to sleep? Why do you have to take a baby to the warmer away from skin to skin? Mm -hmm. I just did a post yesterday on why did some people think that you needed to breastfeed training and you wouldn't feed babies, but for every four hours. And so you'd sit there with for an hour and a half as your baby was screaming and didn't pick it up because somebody in a book told you not to pick it up. Yeah. I mean, who thinks this stuff up? But there are people that think this stuff up that sort of control the minds of everyone else through eight years of or more of training. Oh, yeah. And you come out and thinking that that's the way to do it. And it's very, very hard to break away. Yeah. It is. But if you're human, you can only watch that stuff for so long before mm -hmm. you either have to. Use complete cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. You either quit, which is not helpful for the population, or you try to find another way. Mm -hmm. You branch out, you leave your group, you go into solo practice, you leave the hospital, you do gynecology only or office gynecology because you can't take it anymore. Mm -hmm. So I don't have a magic pill that I can tell people to how to do that. But if something is constantly making you stressed. I don't know a lot of happy OBGYNs. I know that that sounds funny, that they're not going to be laughing and stuff, but how many of them love what they do? To some of them, it's drudgery. Mm -hmm. The idea that you'd want to talk a woman into having a C-section so you can be in and out in 45 minutes, rather than letting her have the experience that she needs and for her baby and her life of having her labor, your brain has been perverted. Oh, 100%. And the OBs that, I mean, I've either had on the show or I've talked to or, you know, no kind of secondhand, what they love is surgery because that's what they're trained in. Like they just, they get this fuel and this passion and this excitement when they get to cut. And so to me, I'm like, but why would you hire somebody whose main, like, that's what they're taught is surgery and how to use a knife well and so if that's not needed then why hire yeah them? i mean they're taught they're taught to look at obstetrics as a as a medical problem yeah i mean everything from everything from the when you take the their history and physical and you ask a woman when she comes in with their pregnancy you get to past medical history and you ask her do you have any other medical problems hmm. all right i got caught doing that two years ago a very wise client said to me what's the first one and for 30 some years, I'd been assuming because the way I was taught and because histories are written out with a problem list and the first problem is, is pregnancy, mm -hmm. but it's really not a problem. Mm -hmm. It's a way of thinking that we were indoctrinated, calling them patients, making them wear a hospital gown, asking, having them ask permission that they, so they can be unhooked to go to the bathroom. This is all about disempowering the person, having them fill out a form when they come in the hospital that asks about how many stairs they have in their house and what did their grandmother die from and do you have any piercings or tattoos is the same form you fill out if you come in with a gunshot wound or appendicitis you're filling out when you're coming in in labor. So you're automatically treated like a patient and doctors, that's how we're taught. Mm -hmm. So we can't, we have to get away from that. And it's very hard 
for doctors to get away from that. They like the medical stuff. They're afraid of having something go wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm lumping a lot of my thoughts into this. So it's, yeah, I hope people no. can break it down. Yeah. But if you look at how medical research goes on pregnancy and newborns, there's one endpoint that matters in these papers. And, you know, it's an important endpoint, but it's not the only endpoint. And that is neonatal death. That's the end point. Yep. And so anything that they can come up with that, that lowers neonatal death, even if it's by a fraction, is something they'll grasp onto. Mm-hmm. And so how that baby gets in the bassinet, that baby in the bassinet, how that baby gets there isn't their problem. Because once the baby's in the bassinet, their job is essentially over. Mm-hmm. Hi, you did a great job. I'll see you in six weeks. And, you know, as the woman goes home, with doesn't know what to do next because the medical model doesn't really carry on like the midwifery model does with multiple postpartum visits and easy access and think treating mother and baby as a unit. Yeah. I know the other day I got a comment on one of my, my videos and she said, basically like 50% of women or babies shouldn't really make it clear what one died before the 50s or the 60s, something like that, because home birth is just so risky. And, you know, it's in birth in itself is inherently risky. And I guess, can we talk about that for a minute? Because what is risk? Who gets to define what risk is? Because when you're talking about like all these papers and lowering the neonatal death and like, we're only we're very myopic when we're talking about birth and outcomes. And so we try and kind of funnel it and define it down into this small, controllable factors that just, I mean, life isn't, life is a, in itself is a risk. So do you have anything to add to that? Or do you have any well, thoughts? Of course. I mean, this is, I spent two days talking about this at my seminar. So hopefully we'll get out some of it now. But there's a tenant in medical ethics that says, given the same information, it's not reasonable to assume two people will come to the same conclusion. Mm-hmm. So risk assessment is varies by people's life experiences. Yeah. So some people think something's risky. Other people think it isn't risky. Some people think something that happens one in 200 or half of 1% is risky. Other people would say that's a really small number. If you give me a 99.5% chance that, that this team is going to win the game, I'm very happy to bet shitload of money mm-hmm. excuse me but mm-hmm. on, on that team whereas other people would say well I, you know i don't want i can't risk losing that mm-hmm. so risk assessment depends a lot on your life experiences and also the way people are counseled will skew the f- information to funnel them down the path that the practitioner wants you to go in other words if you use relative risk you can scare yes. people very easily right you can say something happens three times greater risk that sounds awful, but if the initial risk was one in a million, now the risk is one in 333,000, which is still essentially zero. Mm-hmm. So what you have to know is the actual risk. And in order to know the actual risk, you have to know the denominator. And then you have to use your brain to try to figure out whether that risk really means something or if they're just trying to skew their counseling to get you to do what they want you to do. Mm-hmm. And everybody has their personal biases. Mm-hmm. And nobody wants to admit that they're doing something that's wrong or counseling people that that's wrong. I mean, there's so much here, Allie, that I could unwrap. I mean, ACOG now has put out a couple of papers recently, one on Tdap vaccine and one on the COVID vaccine. They're for us, the ACOG members who 
and how to counsel clients on getting their necessary shots. Right. First during of all, the pregnancy. shots aren't. For, yeah, during pregnancy, of course. First of all, the shots aren't necessary, and that's another podcast yeah. altogether. But secondly, they actually say this in writing that if after counseling the client, your client chooses not to get the vaccine, you must have counseled them wrong. Oh dear. So there's a tenet in medical ethics that says ultimately that the decision on how to proceed belongs with the informed woman. And even the uninformed woman has the right to make a decision. And we as practitioners are supposed to support that. But that's not the way it works. Mm -hmm. And much of what's done is not evidence-based. And I don't even like the term evidence-based because evidence-based requires that you have evidence. Mm -hmm. And right now you can't trust pretty much anything that's in any major journal because of how it's funded or who's promoting it or what their endpoints are. I mean, recently, this happened with the term breach trial 20 years ago, but recently the ARRIVE trial came out. And this is a trial that says, let's induce everyone at 39 weeks. We're going to lower the neonatal morbidity and mortality. Well, they found out it didn't lower the neonatal morbidity and mortality one bit, which was the reason they were inducing them in the first place. It did lower the C-section rate from 22% yes. to 18%. But those are ridiculously low numbers anyway. So what were they doing different in their study that gave you those rates? And is and so their primary outcome, they didn't prove, yet this paper was adopted immediately, despite mm -hmm. the fact that there are a multitude of papers out there that say inducing prime IPS causes a higher C-section rate. So they just chose this one fit their model. It's confirmation mm -hmm. bias. And they exactly. chose to promote this one. And any doctor that goes around telling a woman that it's safer and better for her to deliver at 39 weeks is a liar. Yeah, They're lying. They're not misinformed. They're lying. Or they're so obtuse, they don't understand how, how research works. And they don't understand the whole idea of what nature's design is. Mm -hmm. Intervene in nature's design, because every intervention has a downstream consequence. We may not see it right away. Some we see right away. Others may take years or decades to see them. But Mother Nature has a design and that design between the mother and baby is to communicate throughout the pregnancy and labor and postpartum. And when you interfere with that communication, you end up with these great statistics that we have at American hospitals right now, where mm -hmm. one third of all women are getting cesarean section. Does any reasonable person believe that one third of American women can't deliver their baby as nature designed? Yes. Just stop can. for a second and, and think about that. Yeah. And think like how many dogs need a C-section? How many horses yeah. need a C-section? How many deer are getting sectioned out there? Mm -hmm. All right. Not very many. <laughs> Maybe horse might because yeah. they got a you know a multi-million dollar foal inside of them or something like that. Again, or if you're it goes back to the money. <laughs> or if you're a French bulldog, because yeah. they say that, you know, I don't even believe that about French bulldogs. I've mm -hmm. seen French bulldogs puppies, their heads are are not much bigger than their bodies. I can't believe it. But I have a friend who breeds French bulldogs. And she told me that all her puppies need to be born by cesarean section wow. because that's what she learned because they bred the heads too big, but they didn't look that big to me. And of course, heads mold yeah. and pelvises are not fixed. So yeah, I'll just leave it at that. The things that are being done are being done because they've been done that way for a long time and no one asked the question. So it actually gets back to your original question of how does someone break away from that? Yeah, They have to break away from cognitive dissonance and, and some of the other things that control your mind. And those things are not easy. Mm -hmm. An example I used when I teach my course is I talk about the C-section rate. Mm -hmm. 30, let's just say 30% because it's easy math. Yep. And the World Health Organization, which is not an organization I have high regard for, 
but they say the C-section rate should be somewhere between 10 and 15 percent. Midwives, it should be less than 10 percent. I think in their population, it generally is. But it's all comers. Let's just say it's 15 percent. All right. And that's probably high. But let's just take that because, again, it makes easy math. So if we're sectioning 30 percent of women and it should be 15 percent, what does that tell you about the other 15 percent? Mm-hmm. They're being sectioned for, for completely no reason. Yeah, for un- unnecessarily. Yeah. So here's the question. First of all, if there's about 4 million babies born every year in the United States, that means there's about 1.3 million cesarean sections done. It's the most common operation done in the United States and probably in the world, actually. And if 650,000 of those are being done unnecessarily, how come we don't hear anything about that? If 650,000 unnecessary mastectomies or knee surgeries were happening, people would be up in arms about that. And not only people would be up in arms, but insurance companies would be up in arms because they're paying for this this rot, Yeah. All right? But not a peep comes out of that. But here's, here's the even scarier part. If half of all the C-sections being done are unnecessary, who's doing them? Mm-hmm. Because nobody goes home at night and says to their spouse, hey, honey, guess what? I did two unnecessary C-sections today. Every C-section a doctor does, he believes or she believes is necessary. 100%. Yet half are unnecessary. So how do you reconcile that? You have to have cognitive dissonance. You have to think yeah. the other guy's doing the, the unnecessary C-sections, except the other guy thinks it's you that's doing the unnecessary yeah. C-sections. Yeah, it's so crazy. And I think it goes back to like on the side of the women who are getting these unnecessary C-sections and not asking why, they they have this sense of like, I need safety. Like we've been fed this lie that safety is the thing that we all need to pursue. And so if they're being told by a doctor who's operating in cognitive dissonance that this is the safest route for her baby, of course, 100%, she's going to choose that without asking why. Because why, like if you trust them to do what's best for your baby, why wouldn't you just do it? And I know for me, like my first baby, I went through all of the medical ropes, like got all my shots, did all the things and wound up through this conveyor belt of intervention and ended up with a C-section. And my first question when I went in for my two-week follow-up to my doctor was, why did this happen to me? And I just, I remember it so clearly, but she didn't even know. She did not know. And so she had to walk out of the room, check my chart. She came back and said, essentially, your pelvis is too small. You'll never be able to have a baby vaginally. And I just remember thinking like, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense because I only got to four centimeters. Like, how could my pelvis be too small if I wasn't even pushing a baby through my pelvis yet? Like, all of these questions started to come up. And I guess that's one of the things that I just, I hope comes from our conversation today is women start asking themselves, like, why did this happen to me if they've had a baby before? Or if this is their first baby asking, why are what's being done normalized? Like, why are we doing whatever I'm told to be doing? You know, it's such a powerful question. When you start getting back to the why, that is the powerful question. And the problem is, we've delegated too much power to the authority of the medicalized industrial complex and the doctor and the God complex and all that. And I'm not saying that these are bad people. They're not Mm -hmm. bad people. They go home 
They love their families. Mm -hmm. They probably give to charity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're, they're not bad people, but they are just cogs in a bad, bad system that I used to think was fixable, mm -hmm. but it's not fixable anymore. Yeah. And if you want to have your baby in the hospital, then you should realize that the likelihood that you're going to have an intervention, the likelihood your baby might be taken from you for a while, the likelihood that you'll end up with a surgical birth of some kind or some other complication is going to be significantly higher than if you have a birth at home. Yeah. Now, birth at home is not for everyone. We have this slogan, but informed decision making is. Yeah. And there's a broader topic here. And I'm going to preempt what a podcast that we just, Bliss and I just did with Trish Ludwig and Cynthia Overgaard from the Down to Birth mm -hmm. podcast, one of my other favorite podcasts. Mm -hmm. And we called it Red Flags. Yeah. And they rattle off some red flags. And these are things that I would want to spread the word because they think their wisdom was so great on this. And simple things that you can do as a woman going to see your doctor for the first time is, first of all, don't just pick your doctor to deliver your baby because he or she's been doing your pap smear for the last decade <laughs> and because they seem to be a nice guy. Mm -hmm. But I'm just going to rattle. I'm not going to get into detail, but I'm going to mm -hmm. rattle off some things that they told me. So they said, what language does the doctor use? All right. Are they going to allow you to do this? Are they going to let you do this? If they start using language like that. That's a red flag. Mm -hmm. It's not their decision to allow you to do anything. Yep. You can ask them about, well, how do you feel about a due date? What happens if I go a day past my due date? How do you handle that? Or what's their th theory on VAG exams? Mm -hmm. Right. What's uh, the most dangerous in the world of obstetrics is routine. Why are we doing this test? Well, it's routine. These are the things that if you listen for these cues and you once you understand that these cues are a sign of somebody who is sort of not wanting to give you the time of day, how long did they make you wait in the waiting room before you got in there? All right. There was a study that came out that showed a home birth midwife makes the average wait of two minutes for a visit that's 61 minutes long. The average obstetrician makes you wait 31 minutes for an average visit that's 11 minutes long. All right. Now, 11 minutes seems like a long visit to me for an OB for your prenatal visit. But still, the, the difference is, is stark. Why would you acquiesce to that? You would never acquiesce to that if you hired an interior designer for your house mm -hmm. and she showed up an hour late and she showed up with the wrong furniture. <laughs> mm -hmm. you, you, would, you would never do that. But for this, we end up sometimes just thinking that that's the way it's supposed to be. I'm letting your listeners know it's not the way it's supposed to be. No. This is a life event. Mm -hmm. And like your wedding, and I'm not going to get into the wedding analogy. Everybody uses that wedding analogy. Yeah. I think Blisk is the one that came up with it. But, you know, you would never tolerate these types of things for your, your wedding. Mm -hmm. But yet we are told what we're going to do and where we're going to do it and how we're going to do it and, and all that stuff just by this. And we give up our autonomy. Yeah. And you should not, you should not do that. You should be asking why. And if you're running into somebody who doesn't give you the time of day or rolls their eyes or says to you, wait a minute, I'll be right back because they don't remember. Now, it's OK. They forgot your husband's name or they they can't remember something that happened a year ago, but two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then coming back with some bogus explanation, like your hips are so small that you'll never have a baby again. That's somebody that you should run away from, never go back to again, because that person doesn't even understand physiology, let alone obstetrics. Exactly. Yeah, so this might be opening up 
a whole new can of worms. And I, I don't know the answer, so I have no idea where this is going to go. But I'm, like, a can of, I'm a can of worms. Oh, I love it. I love it. So my question is, where the heck did this start? Like, why the cognitive dissonance? Who is controlling this cognitive dissonance that doctors are? And what's the point? Like, what's the purpose? Why are we sucked in? And why is it so hard to break away without being canceled? Or yeah, I mean, losing our job, losing our friends. What the heck is happening? <laughs> because well, I just see you were saying like, if you enter the hospital system, like you just need to know that this is a grave possibility. And I, with the way the world is going, it seems to be getting worse. Like you're not going to have, it's not going to be 30% C-section rate. It's going to be 50%. It's going to get worse and worse and worse because we have been so controlled. We've been so mind worked to think that like the authorities that be know what's best and whatever they say, I'm just going to go do freely. Like What's happening? <laughs> well, this this would take hours to unravel, but I'll I'll start with an example with the new Inflation Reduction Act. Mm -hmm. By the way, anytime a government uh, puts out an act that sounds good, run for the hills because it's usually the opposite, like the Affordable Care Act or, mm -hmm. or you know, whatever Patriot Act. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they were they mm -hmm. were all the opposite of those sorts of things. Yeah. But they, one of the things in that, they're going to hire 87,000 new IRS agents, okay? And I heard an interview with a senator on the Democratic side say, well, this is going to make it great because now you're going to get good service. When you call the IRS, you're actually going to get a human being. And I don't know whether he actually believed that, if that's a talking point, if he's actually gaslighting what he's doing. But does anyone really believe that that's the purpose of hiring 87,000 new agents? And as anything, and the point being is that has anything that's ever gotten bigger in history ever gotten better? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Anytime that something gets bigger, by definition, it gets less personal. You can't find a human being. Somebody is getting really, really wealthy. Uh, you've instituted third parties in between. When patients used to pay doctors, when students had to pay for their tuition. Tuition was low. Doctor's fees were relatively low. That sort of thing. Then you come in with third-party people. You come in with the government and student loans, or you come in with um, in companies. Mm -hmm. And now doctors can charge whatever they want because insurance, the third party, the non-entity is paying it. And I can pay whatever I want for tuition because someone else is paying it. So you've removed responsibility, the direct responsibility. And that, that again, these are all paths that lead to somebody, everybody abdicating the responsibility. There is no little cartel sitting in a room saying, let's be assholes to pregnant women, mm -hmm. right? They don't do that. They don't see it that way. There is an administrative state runs through the hospital model. An administrator's job is to do what? Administrate. Administrate, okay. So, you know, the old famous saying that those that do do, those that can't do teach, that those that can't teach, administrate. Mm -hmm. And who gets paid the most in that mm -hmm. hierarchy? The administrator, the one that can't do the actual work. Mm -hmm. So the nurses and doctors and techs and, and phlebotomists and everybody that doing all the work are getting paid less than the administrators who work nine to five who are deciding mm -hmm. what you have to do at two in the morning. 
And if you don't do that as a nurse at two in the morning, if you don't take that set of vital signs and wake that woman up and it's not charted, you have to do one of two things. You have to dry lab it, which means you're cheating because you're just filling in a number or you have to wake that person up because if you don't, you're going to get yelled at by some administrator who was home sleeping at two in the morning and comes in and yells at you. Mm -hmm. So the system is run. It's almost like a headless horseman. It is just run right now and it's on autopilot and it's very difficult to to break it because you can't just approach somebody and say, let's change this policy Yeah. because there's 16 committees that have to meet in order to change a policy. Another stupid example that I use a lot is when I was a resident, we had a microscope in labor and delivery and we could do our own wet smears and we could do our own looking for membranes ruptured or Mm -hmm. look at urines under the microscope and have an instant answer. And at one point, the microscope broke. And besides the hospital having no incentive to get us a new one, because now they have to send the stuff to the lab where they could bill for it before we were doing it for free, but anything that goes to the lab, um, we finally got a new microscope, but it took eight months. Now, if you broke a microscope or you broke an appliance in your house and you needed it, you go out the next day and you either get it fixed or you buy a new one. Mm -hmm. But hospitals can't do that because in order to order a thing, you need to have committees that meet and they only meet once a month and then they have to get three bids and they have to bring it back to the committee that only meets once a month. And then that committee needs to get approval from this other committee. And you know where I'm going Mm -hmm. with this. And you 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 want to blow your brains out uh, trying to get something done in that system. But administrators thrive in that system because, you know what, there's too much work here. We need to hire more administrators. Mm. My mother was a school teacher. And when she started in the 60s, with teaching, there was one principal and one assistant principal at her school. When she finished 20 some years later, they fired the gym teacher, they fired the music teacher, they had two principals and six assistant principals to run the same, actually a declining enrollment because the peak enrollment, actually my high school graduate 1974 my high school had the most students it ever had before or after sort of the peak of the baby boom graduating um in my high school class we had 970 some people and as the role enrollment declined they they continue to hire no more administrators it's like the government never gets smaller mm-hmm. and hospital administration never gets smaller because that would mean they giving up their own jobs mm-hmm. and they're the ones that end up hiring firing people so they're Hiring and firing, the person they're going to fire is going to be the music teacher. It's going to be the maybe the counselor in the hospital or the lactation consultant or whatever. Those are the people that are going to get laid off, not the administrators. So you asked, how do you beat this beast? Uh, you can't beat them at their own game. You have to walk away. Yeah. You have to walk away because, again, or you have to be willing. You have to have be courageous. It's not courageous yeah. to keep your head down and just do things that you know in your heart are wrong. And every day in every doctor's office, in every hospital, unethical things occur every day. People know they're unethical and they do them anyway. Oh, yeah. I mean, I could I could name times just in nursing school, like on rounds that I would go to things I would see. And one of them I just remember so clearly is we were on LND. And I hated LND, man. I was like, I don't want to do this ever <laughs> because it felt so dark and it felt just so off, but I couldn't name it at the time. But I was following this nurse and a patient handed her her birth 
plan and we walked back to the nursery and she tossed it to the side and she said oh we don't even look at those and I I remember being so shocked by that like how as an advocate for a patient you're not even looking at what the patient wants and so it was a slow move out of that and I remember learning what a doula was after being so traumatized myself and being like, well, maybe if I had a doula in the system, it would have helped me. And so I said, if I could enter that system and help one woman, then I would be doing, you know, I would be doing my job and I would be helping people. But the more I was in that system, the harder and harder it got to just sit there and watch what was going on. Because like, doulas don't really have that much control to change anything and no and i'll tell you let me add this Allie. that that some hospitals think they're being well first of all we know hospitals put on a show because hospitals are scrambling over themselves to get this label called mother baby friendly yeah prior to the the lockdowns once the lockdowns happened that went out the window immediately and women were not allowed to have support team and mother baby friendly so it, it was all posturing it wasn't actually real and the same thing goes with hospitals that think i'm going to be really progressive we're going to have a doula program mm-hmm. and we're going to have doulas for women who, who come in and labor without their own doula but the question is a doula's fiduciary duty is to the woman who's laboring yep. Yep. if she's being paid by the hospital what's the chance that she's going to counteract anything that the nurse or the doctor says 100%. the hospital is her employer so you have that issue I had uh, Lindsay Mila, she's a local midwife here in Orange County in Los Angeles, and she tells her story. And in it, she said that when I was working as a labor and delivery nurse, I felt like I was a partner in a crime. And since she said that on the podcast, I probably had two dozen Instagram messages or emails from women who echoed that sentiment that they couldn't take it anymore. And they had to leave labor and delivery nursing because every day they were watching mistreatment of the women that came in there, yeah. whether it be something as simple as we don't look at their birth plan anymore to something as, as we're as saying you can't, you can't get off your back. Yeah. You have to yeah. deliver on your back or holding them down yeah. or starving them or interrupting them constantly. Yeah. Pulling them out of tubs saying you can't labor on your hands and knees because you're yeah. back. What? Yeah. You can't, you can't do this. You're not allowed to do this. We don't do that here. Oh yeah interrupting them for protocol dictated procedures like oh we have to take your blood pressure every hour mm-hmm. well i can t- tell you from experience that if a woman comes in with a normal blood pressure that other than if she gets hypotensive because she mm-hmm. gets she had an epidural and her blood pressure dropped or something like that she's not going to get suddenly malignantly hypertensive that you need to interrupt her mm-hmm. her primitive brain which is what mm-hmm. labor is to bring her in her cognitive brain to ask her, I'm going to put this blood pressure cuff on your arm. I'm going to pump your blood. Why are you doing that? Yeah. What's the point? Well, we have a box that needs to be filled. Yeah. That's why we're doing it. Yeah. Look at, I look back at myself when I first came out and I would deliver a baby with a wearing a hazmat suit and I would hold the baby in one hand and I would doubly clamp the cord and cut the cord immediately. Or maybe I'd give the dad the scissors and cut the cord immediately. Mm-hmm. And I'd show the baby to the mother and then I'd walk the baby across the room and put the baby down in the warmer. Yeah. And I did this for years mm-hmm. until I realized, again, from the midwives that I began to cover, I mean, my metamorphosis took a long time and it really was started by 
agreeing to take midwife transports, as I said earlier, not because I thought it was a good idea, but because I wanted to make money. But during that period of time, I began to see a different way of doing things by just sitting there talking to these midwives and watching how, how well-educated their clients were, that sort of thing. So you learn a different way of doing things. But if you ask a nurse, why do you have to take a baby to the warmer? Now they're changing slowly, but there's no reason. They don't have an answer for you. Their answer is, I have to check the baby out. And you go, well, there's that little Stewie saying, why do you need to check the baby out? The baby's yeah. crying. The baby's fine. The baby's pink. The baby's moving. Why do you need to check the baby out? The baby's best place it could possibly be would be with its mother. Mm -hmm. Again, would you walk in and take a, a baby tiger away from its mother? Would you take a baby bear cub away from its mother or a baby chimpanzee away from its mother? No, you would never do that because you know what? You would get mauled mm -hmm. by the mother. Mm -hmm. Yet we just willingly give up our baby and say, let take it to the warmer. Oh, it's time to go to the nursery now. Why does the baby need to go to the nursery? These are hospital dictated protocols put in place by people who don't know, don't understand anything. Maybe we're initially good-minded, if that's a word, but or good-hearted, mm -hmm. but they're fools. Yeah. And let's call them what they are. The people mm -hmm. that still stick to this model as a routine, okay, it's necessary at times. And that's mm -hmm. why we call individualization of care something that's really important. And the midwifery model, that's what exists. In the medical model, everybody's put in an algorithm and mm -hmm. a routine. And every single person needs to pee in a cup when they come in and they need yeah. to get an IV and they need to get blood drawn and they need to have a wristband and they need to change into a hospital gown. Like why? Mm -hmm. It's all to disempower you. Yeah. It's all to treat you as a patient. Well, I can a woman have a baby in a parking lot all by herself or at home all by herself, but in the hospital, she's an invalid. Yeah. Well, and then need an ambulance if she does have it <laughs> to be transported to the hospital to just make sure everybody's okay and then go it's through It's the all dumbest that. thing. It's... If you ever have a baby accident at home, yeah, stay home. Stay home. Yep. Don't go to the hospital. If you go to the hospital, your baby will be treated as a BOA. A BOA is born out of a sepsis, okay, which means that your baby could be infectious because wow. it wasn't born in a sterile hospital environment. I don't know if they still oh, use I didn't those know terms, that. but that's what it was when a baby was born, not in the, in the delivery room. It was called BOA, mm -hmm. and those babies were observed more carefully for infection afterwards, mm -hmm. as if that's a risk of infection. Again, the thinking, you ask when it started, did it start? 50 years ago, 100 years ago, it started thousands of years ago. Mm. You know, I was funny. I was the gaslighting started thousands. Of years. I, I'm reading a book and I said this on a podcast to Bliss the other day I, that I read about 30 years ago called The Mists of Avalon. It's a you may have heard about it. It's the story of King Arthur from told from the from the woman's perspective. There's a place in the story where where Morgane has a baby and Morgaz is her aunt and wants to take control of that baby because it's King Arthur's firstborn. And all Morgane wants to do is, uh, is cuddle with her baby and breastfeed her baby. And Morgaz tells her that if she has skin to skin with her baby, that the baby will not accept the wet nurse. Oh. Okay. So again, I know this is fiction and I know it's yeah. not. But that's, it actually happened. Like that's. That's probably what they were yeah. told. Oh yeah. In the manipulation that went on in the, in the royal families of uh -huh. Europe and that sort of thing. And that is so far from the truth. So when did it all start? I have no idea when it started. Yeah. It became corporatized in the 20s and 30s when organized medicine took active campaign to get rid of mid home birth midwifery mm. and bring women into the hospital. They had an advertising campaign, the American Medical Association did, 
Yeah. So on that subject, and I've talked about it here on the podcast before, but living in Nebraska, like home birth midwifery is like totally underground at this point, because if you, if you call yourself a midwife, the state thinks that they have control over that term. And so can charge you with a felony, even though the law truly does state that a woman can have her baby at home, a certified nurse midwife is not allowed to attend. Which, by the way, before you go on, is, yeah. is about as stupid as you can possibly Oh, it is it. so stupid. <laughs> a state that doesn't have the courage to make it illegal for a woman to have the babies at home because they know that the women will stand up and scream. Yes. So you can have a baby at home, but if you have anybody that's qualified to help you there, yep. that's a felony for them. Yes, it is insane. But The encouraging part is women are still doing it and they're doing it in droves. And there are other women who are not certified nurse midwives who will come and surround other women and help them have babies at home. But there is this underlying, like, I hear all the time, I get messages all the time, like, I want a home birth, but like, isn't it illegal? And they ask all these questions, like, instead of just saying, this is what I want, and I'm going to do it, like, they have to go through, I should have co-care with my provider, and I need somebody. And I, it's like one foot in, one foot out. And so I guess, what encouragement do you have for women who have this deep, innate desire to have their baby in a safe place at their home, and yet are still kind of like, tippy-toeing around? Or, What advice do you have for people who are seeing what is going on in the system and being like, I want to help these women here? Do you have any advice or any encouragement for people in these type of situations? Yeah, I do. Problem is, it has to be individualized. It's not specific because every woman's situation is different. So any advice that you give in a general sense like this isn't going to apply to everybody. And some people are going to think it's wrong or it doesn't apply to them. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. But in general, if you're pregnant and don't have a real significant medical problem, right? It's a real significant medical problem would be heart disease, cancer, maybe poorly controlled diabetes, triplets, quadruplets, mm-hmm. <laughs> that sort of thing. What uh, about like issues with the baby? I mean, if, is there anything that would kind of... Well, I'm saying we don't know that initially. I'm just saying initially, okay. I would say hire a midwife and don't go to the hospital Yeah, because the hospital is not your friend. The hospital's fiduciary duty I think, is to protect you as a patient. That is really far down on the, on their list. If by accident they do things for you that make you feel safe, that's great, but that's not their purpose. Their purpose mm-hmm. is to make money and their purpose is not to get sued and their purpose is to keep their jobs. Mm-hmm. And ultimately after that comes everything else. And that may sound harsh. That's true of any business whether it be Amazon or any other business. Mm -hmm. The RV park I'm in right now is they've got to keep their doors open. Mm -hmm. And there are certain things that they have to do to do that. And so their fiduciary duty is to the shareholders of the hospital and to keep their doors open and to maximize profits, which is why babies going to NICUs and moms staying long and C-section rates aren't dropping because the hospital makes more money if you have any of those things. So stay away from the hospital as much as you can. If you want a physician because you feel safer with that, think about that, reevaluate that, but go into the interview with your physician, not with awe, but with skepticism. Mm. And then ask those questions. Mm -hmm. Like I mentioned earlier, or can I give birth in any position? 
Just ask the questions and see how they respond. Don't ask them, what's your C-section rate? Because no doctor who's got a 50% C-section rate is going to tell you he's got a 50. They're going to lie. So don't do that. And if you're going to insist on having a doctor, then I would get concurrent care with a midwife. Because a midwife is going to spend an hour at every prenatal visit with you, and they're going to teach you about preventative care and nutrition and sleep and stress reduction and how's your sex life and talk about the things that will really matter, whereas a doctor in their six or 11-minute visit isn't going to be able to do any of those things, and they're going to probably pop an ultrasound on you. Avoid unnecessary testing. Yeah. Don't just do a test because they tell you it's routine. Or Don't do that. Yeah. Don't do that. Ask why. Why is this important? If they don't have the time of day for you and you stay there, then you deserve what you get. Run away. Yeah. And if, if you can't have a home birth because you're in a state that makes it really difficult or makes you feel insecure because of fear, which is the controlling influence on almost everything we do in our lives by every day, yeah. then think about traveling. Think about spending yeah. some money. Travel across state lines. Go to a state that's more friendly. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is one of the beauties of the of the uh, federalist system is that we have states where you know, midwifery is well received. Mm-hmm. and We have states where midwifery is vilified beyond belief. Mm-hmm. And you need to consider relocating at 35, 36 weeks to an Airbnb in some place and finding somebody in another state. You know, most of the time you don't need a physician. There aren't very many of us anyway that do what I do. You don't need a physician. There are a few things you might. Certain states may have a law against twins or breaches, which is wrong. Midwives are probably the torchbearers of that profession. When I teach my seminars or when Rick and David teach theirs with Breach Without Borders, mm-hmm. you know, 95% of the attendees are midwives. We rarely get a physician to come because physicians are indoctrinated to believe that this is scary. And once you come out and you're practicing, one, you're probably not going to want to do it anyway. Two, your partners aren't going to want you to do it. Mm-hmm. And your call group is more important than what this woman wants because you have to have a call group. And so you'll tell her you can't do breach and you'll probably make it up by saying breach is dangerous or nobody does breach. You know, only crazy people do breach deliveries. And you'll say these things because that's how you feel better about the fact that you're not offering it or the hospital will ban it or whatever. So you'll it's not a fight you want to take when you're in in the medical world. So you'll find a reason not to do that. So the gaslighting that goes on in the medical model is pervasive. So, again, this is not an easy question to answer, but. Birth is not a medical problem. It occasionally, it's a normal bodily function that occasionally becomes a problem. I liken it to breathing or digestion. It's a primitive brain function. I've been talking to you now for 45 minutes. I haven't really thought about breathing. My stomach hasn't been bothering me because I do these interviews all the time. But if I have to do an interview with somebody from the FBI, I might get an upset stomach. Mm -hmm. That's because my brain is, my cognitive brain is overriding my stomach. Mm -hmm. That's the same thing that happens with labor. When you start thinking too much about labor, your labor becomes dysfunctional. Your pregnancy can become a problem. It's a normal function. And you should remember that your body is designed to do this. Mm -hmm. Nature made a great design that maybe 5 to 10% of the time needs medical assistance. And if you don't meddle with Mother Nature, that need for medical assistance is pretty obvious to your midwife long before it becomes an emergency. People are all, the question that I always ask is, What if this sort of thing happens where the baby's heart rate crashes and you have to be right next to an operating room at the hospital? What if that happens at home? And I will tell you from all my experience that that rarely happens at home because we're not meddling with mother nature. What you see in the hospital is almost always a baby that decompensates because the mother's been starved, immobilized, anesthetized, 
and hyperstimulated for the mm-hmm. last 12 to 20 hours. And the baby finally decompensates. And then they say, see, what would you have done if this had happened at home? We mm-hmm. saved your baby by having mm-hmm. an operating room here. And it's like, well, yeah, it's like your firemen, you start the fire and then you put it out and then you want the people that to thank you for putting out the fire that you started. Well, like Stockholm syndrome, like straight up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a way of looking at it that way. And I, look at, I know some of your listeners probably have never heard anybody speak like I'm speaking right now. And because of the limited time, I, I'm mm-hmm. sort of being blunt. Yeah. But I think it's important that, you know, there is some value to shock value. Yeah. 100%. Making people think twice about what they're doing and making sure that they're making wise decisions. Yeah. Wise for them doesn't mean wise for you. Everybody has different life experiences. And our model respects that. Uh-huh. The medical model does not. Mm-hmm. Very individualized. Yeah. You're caught yeah. in their wheel. Yeah. Well, if anybody wants to connect with you and ask you more questions, which I'm sure they will, because this was a fiery podcast and I loved it. I think this needs to be talked about more just because we're not only seeing it in birth. You know, that's the problem is it might have been normalized here in birth, but it's starting to become normalized in different areas. And so if we can start critically thinking and asking why when we are pregnant, we're just more spiritually aware of like what's going on when we have a baby inside of us. I don't know why that is, but it's so powerful. And I think that this is the perfect time to start asking those critical questions so that you can make the best decisions for you in all areas of your life. So If they want to connect with you, learn more, connect with your workshops, which I wish we would have gotten to talk about today. Maybe I'll have to have you on another time to talk about Breach and Twins. Yeah. Can you just tell us where we can find you? My website is birthinginstincts.com. On the website is everything you need to know. You can find all my links, all my connections. I have a consultation service. I have the events page where you can go if you wanted to host a Breach conference there's a page you can sign up for that, get more information from my assistant, Emily. I'm at Birthing Instincts on Instagram. I'm also at, on Facebook, but I don't ever go to Facebook. Instagram just automatically sends stuff to Facebook. So don't write me on Facebook because I will not find a message there. And you can email me through my website to mm-hmm. at info at birthinginstincts.com. And then of course, listen to the podcast, give mm-hmm. us a good rating, give us mm-hmm. five stars yeah. and share it because that's a point where every week Bliss and I and Bliss and I come from come at things from a whole different world perspectives. And we're two people, we don't always agree on everything, but mm. we are a great example of how two people who can see things sometimes differently, often the same, but can still get along and love each other and respect each other and not get into this thing where he's crazy, he's nuts, you're an asshole, you're unethical. No, we don't, we don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's the way it should be. And lastly, I would say that ultimately the solution to all this is not going to be the hospital. It's going to be something that evolves that's different. It's going to be a breaking of the silos where doctors and midwives and nurse labor nurses and lactation consultants and doulas spend time interacting in their training and also after training. It would be great if a OB resident could spend a month with a home birth midwife. Yeah. And a home birth midwife can work in the hospital and a OB resident or a, a, an OB had to spend a month on labor and delivery acting as a labor nurse and seeing what goes on in the other aspects of things. Right now, everybody's in their own little silo and they never mix. And if they never mix, they don't. there's always a room for misunderstanding. Hmm. So 
that's what's going to happen. We're trying to work on something small. There are all these billions of dollars being sent to Ukraine. They're being mm-hmm. spent on solar and wind and all that stuff. Nothing could be more important in our lives than how we give birth mm-hmm. and how we start out and the relationship we have with our families. Every family is touched by birth. By mm-hmm. definition, you have mm-hmm. to be mm-hmm. in order to have a family. And yet it's so far down on the totem pole. If we had benefactors like George Soros or Bill Gates or spending their money on this, as opposed to some of their other crazy pet, mm-hmm. maybe dastardly projects, maybe the world would be a better place. Oh, we'll yeah. See. 100%. When you focus on family, that's the thing. Lately, it's been focusing on splitting up families. So this is important work that you're doing. And I just appreciate your time coming on the show and talking with me about this important subject. So thank you, Dr. Sue. Thank you for having me, Ali. All right. I told you it was going to be fiery and passionate. (laughs) I loved talking with Dr. Sue. It was such an amazing interview. And I'm just so honored he took the time to come on this show. So make sure you connect with him. All of his Contact information is below. You can connect with him on Instagram, his website, check out his book and learn more about him there. Also, if you want to connect with me, you can go to Empowered Birth Podcast on Instagram and you can DM me there if you have any questions or you want to connect that way. And then also don't forget about our private Facebook group. It's facebook.com slash empowered mamas tribe. And that is such a wonderful group to ask questions and to get support. There's honestly nothing better than women supporting women. And that's what this group is all about. So go ahead and go there. Find your tribe. It really makes all the difference. Thanks again for joining me for another episode, and we'll see you next time on the Empowered Birth Podcast. Mm